And hindsight's wonderful, you know, to look back and everybody says, how could you have been fooled by Barry Minko? How could anyone have fallen for the old fraudulent building restoration scam or an old Ponzi scheme? Well, very easily. Um, the press says I'm gold. The banks said I was gold. I had Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed as my lawyers. I was doing well on Wall Street. And I leveraged my auditors by saying, you don't want to be the only one, the only non-believer, do you? Welcome back to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gaznavi at Cena Now on all social media. Justin Williams is with us as always. You can find him on Facebook and on JustinWilliamsComedy.com. Justin, last we left Barry, he had just gone public. Things were looking great. ZZZ best. Carpet cleaning had like a market cap of like uh, over 100 or maybe 200 million at this point. But now it's time for everything to turn. Yeah, man. It turns out that in order to do some of this stuff, at some point, people are going to like look for like data. And that's <laughs> the whole catch to this thing. <laughs> Life is crumbling now. Okay, so just to recap, just a quick one. He goes public in December of 1986. And just to give you a little preview, it would take seven months. So July of 87 for Minko to resign and ZBest to file for bankruptcy. So let's track this. How did this all blow up in his face? And then remember, folks, there's a whole other section of his life that we have to get to still. So we're going to try to move through this as swiftly and as wonderfully as possible. It all starts in May of 1987. Remember, he's had five months of just living the dream. He's got money. He's got Porsches. He's got Rolls Royces that he's gifting away. He is living the dream. But in May of 87, something from his past comes back to screw him over. Kind of like uh, John Leguizamo in Carlito's Way, where he comes back and kills Al Pacino at the end. Remember that? That's a good one. Yeah, you, you forget. You should never disrespect Benny Blanco from the Bronx, even though he <laughs> may not be an old school guy. You got to remember, you have to recognize that he might have the same hunger that you had as a young street kid and, and would tolerate disrespect the same way you didn't tolerate it as a young guy. So the L.A. Times drops a story about credit card fraud, the same credit card fraud that we talked about in the last episode where he was taking people's credit card numbers, overcharging them. This poor woman who had a $75 carpet cleaning job ended up getting charged $3,000 on her credit card. The title of this story was behind WizKid is a trail of false credit card billings and a bunch of torn up carbon paper. If you were around in the eighties, <laughs> then you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Exactly. Uh, a few weeks later, the stock, cause you know, bad news equals bad things for your stock price. And the stock loses almost 30% down to $11 on May 21st. Around that same time, so you got publicity coming in that's negative. You also have the first appearance of a rat in the name of Norman Rothberg. Now, Norman Rothberg is not someone we talked about really at all. 
because Norman Rothberg wasn't really involved in Z-Best up until 1987. He actually came in later. Now, I've got a little bit of a, something, from, again, from Dan Ack's book on Barry Minkow, the Wonder Boy book. He really, really breaks down Norman really well here, and I just want to read a little bit from it. <clears throat> Norman Rothberg was a 51-year-old chain smoker thrust deep in poverty by a variety of mishaps, marital and otherwise. Thrice divorced, Rothberg couldn't pass the California bar and lost $140,000 all borrowed trying to finance a real estate deal with offshore investments in Decatur, Georgia. And you can uh, see more about his life on the new season of True Detective, Dark Middle-Aged Personality. <laughs> so he's bankrupt, right? He's got his whole bankruptcy in suit, but this man will not quit. And that's something that Barry, I think, has attracted. People that just won't quit. They won't quit defrauding people. So how does Rothberg get in touch with Z-Best? Well, turns out, since they're both from the San Fernando Valley, Barry and some of the other Z-Best guys and Rothberg all saw the same San Fernando Valley psychic. <laughs> one thing led to another. Rothberg started working with one of the accountants for Z-Best. That's right. I want to tell you, Barry Rothberg, to, to work with the great Barry Minko. Together, your spirits will make a good lot of money. It's me, Miss Cleo. I'm making a cameo in this episode only for the hardcore fans that have been following since day one. The timeline don't necessarily make sense, but here I am again, child. That's right. It's me, Miss Cleo. As part of my powers as a celestial, I'm able to time travel into different timelines. Okay. So... so while he's there, and he's just there for a few months, he starts seeing uh, Nazi Tom and Mark Mort start having these conversations about how they kind of lied in some of these deals, and they were bragging about how they pulled one over on someone. Well, turns out that Rothberg was actually friends with Howard Levy, who was one of the partners at Ernst & Winnie, the auditing firm that was in charge of approving the books for Z-Best. And so Rothberg, again, he's an old disheveled man that has been broken by bankruptcy and failed marriages. He crawls over to this guy at Ernst & Winnie, and he has no real way of being smooth about it. So he goes to Howard Levy, and he tries to communicate to Levy that there's a fraud going on at Z-Best, but he doesn't want to say it's Barry. He doesn't want to say Z-Best. He doesn't want to say anything. So he says to him, what if a client's financial statements are materially misstated by as much as 80%? Well, Levy told him the accountant could consult the Code of Professional Ethics of the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, or he could call a lawyer. Is this a client of yours, Levy wanted to know? No. Is it a public company? Yes. A light went on in Levy's head. Is it a client of Ernst & Winnie? Yes. Alarmed, Levy pressed. Is it a client of our office? No. Is it a client of the area? Yes. Well, who is it? It seems like who's on first at this point when this is all escalating here? All signs are pointing towards Colonel Mustard doing it in the dining room with the wrench. <laughs> yes. So Rothberg, over the course of a couple weeks finally gets it across 
to Levy that, hey, this is fucking Barry Minko. It's Z-Best. 80% of their balance sheet is complete bullshit. And so Ernst and Winnie, again, have a duty to not Z-Best, but the public. And they didn't go to the public. They didn't do anything. They went to Barry and said, hey, you know, this guy, Norm Rothberg, came and told us 80% of your books are cooked. And so Barry and Nazi Tom are like, oh, whatever do you mean? Our books? Our pristine books? I'm but an innocent Italian-American from the Los Angeles Valley. Surely you couldn't mean me. <laughs> why is he? <laughs> I don't know why I made him that voice, but it sounds so innocent. Yeah, he's like a friend of Voltaire's in that, like... <laughs> So Barry gets pissed, puts Rothberg in a room with him and Mark Mortz and Nazi Tom, and they start leaning on him. And Rothberg, again, 50s, he's broke. He doesn't know what to do. He's trying to figure out how he's going to get his ass out of this thing. And so he decides to play hardball. Rothberg demands $100,000 from Barry to recant his story but then settled on $25,000 in cash and $1,000 every Friday for the next three years. He actually ended up getting $17,000 in all. So on June 9th, Rothberg calls Ernst and Winnie again and says, uh, about all that stuff I said, um, it was all not true. I didn't have any firsthand knowledge. Please forget everything you, I said to you. And they're like, wow, this is super weird. This is really weird, guys. I don't understand why this is weird. That always works with law enforcement. Oh, I made it all up, and there's no reason to look into why I'm recanting this story. Yeah, exactly. The auditors are like, oh, okay, no problem. That's fantastic. Still collecting our fees from ZBest. It'll be great. But here's where it gets even better, Justin. Again, you got L.A. credit card fraud story. Now the auditors know about 80% of the books at ZBest being fraudulent. On June 11th, just two days later, Ernst and Winnie get a letter from a guy named B. Cautious. <laughs> Cousin of Cypress Hill frontman, B. Real. <laughs> and by the way, it's B. Period Cautious. Not even like B. Cautious, but just B. Period. So really, just like maybe an English minor uh, wrote this up here. And this guy, or this person rather, lists off a bunch of issues. Now, a little context for this letter. One of the real things that ZBest did was buy like a warehouse full of electrical generators. That way they could have an asset that they could say, this is an asset, we're moving it from this company to that company to show things that are moving around. So if an auditor says, hey, you said you bought all these electrical generators, where are they? They can actually point to the one physical thing that they had. So the letter says, the electrical generators which appear in the balance sheet purchased for $1.97 million were purchased for scrap for less than $100,000 through intermediate users of ZBest and resold to ZBest at an inflated value with the sole purpose of inflating assets on the balance sheet. So think about that. They buy it for scrap. They sell it back to themselves for nearly $2 million 
So it looks like they have this very expensive asset on their balance sheet. Again, inflating the size of their company. A uh, quick side note about uh, these electrical generators. Some of them were actually used in the 1987 Super Bowl with the New York Giants uh, that was at the Rose Bowl arena. So these, this is probably the realest thing that Z-Best ever did was help light the Rose Bowl for the Super Bowl. So You can still see a line... Uh cut by Lawrence Taylor on one of those generators. So it's really amazing <laughs> memorabilia. The be cautious letter goes on. The restoration contracts are fictitious as are the bookkeeping entries to support their validity. The checks between the companies with Zbest are all fraudulent. Billings and earnings for 1985 and 1986 are fabricated. I mean, this is it. This is it. So Ernst and Winnie get all of this information. The LA Times piece, Norman's confession, and suspicious recanting, and the be cautious whistleblower letter. If you're Ernst and Winnie, you are furious. And this was the final straw. When they got all of this information, they went to Z-Best and were like, listen, the credit card shit, this be cautious shit, you guys have to run an investigation. You can't just have all of this stuff happening. So the auditors go to Zbest and say, hey, board of directors. Now, uh, if you don't know, a board of directors is just a group of people that basically get to make the decisions for the company via the CEO. So the CEO is actually beholden to the board of directors. Uh, if you remember back in the day, uh, Steve Jobs got, uh, quote, kicked out of Apple. Well, the board of directors voted him out, basically, right? So all of these, these board of directors, you're supposed to basically put together a board of directors that's an advisory council for you. So them, people that you could trust, people that have specialized knowledge in the field of carpet cleaning or restoration projects, people that have financial knowledge. Well, Barry put together a board of directors that was Daniel Kropman Sr., the gym rat that was his first surrogate father at the gym, Hal Berman, a former weightlifting instructor, <laughs> Neil Dem, who owned the building where they kept all of those electrical generators, <laughs> and Vera Hojeki, who was a friend from Los Angeles who was just a huge fan of Barry's. So he said to these people, you guys have to run an investigation. This is like the uh, plot from that uh, Mark Wahlberg rock movie, Pain and Game, where it's just a bunch <laughs> of like, a bunch of just like muscle guys committing crimes. Yeah, exactly. They have no idea what to do. They're just juiced up the whole time. <laughs> so at this point, the investigation obviously didn't go anywhere. Ernst and Winnie has to pull out and they say, as of uh, June, we are no longer your auditor. All right, so I want to bring in a quote because I think you can all tell at this point, the auditors, Ernst and Winnie, have not really done their job very well. It should have been obvious very quickly that they were not looking hard enough at what Minko was doing. And I, I really wanted to know more about... What is the responsibility or what is the relationship between an auditor and the company they audit? Because 
The public doesn't pay the auditor. Z Best is paying Ernst and Winnie. And when other big auditing firms, E and W, Ernst and Winnie here was a big auditing firm, they're gonna see they're like, oh man, Ernst and Winnie's got the Z Best account. Wish we had that one. So there's a lot of FOMO within the industry. And you don't want to piss off the people that pay you money, which is inherently a a a flawed <laughs> conflict of interest here. So I actually have a friend who is a former Ernst & Young auditor. And by the way, Ernst & Winnie became Ernst & Young through all these weird mergers. That's how business works, people. They all change names to some variant of a wasp's name. So when I asked them, hey, you know, what is the relationship that people have between the company and the auditor? And they said, and I'm quoting from the message, I have to make them anonymous for safety, of course. Again, this is from a former Ernst & Young auditor. Not only do you build a relationship, but the client is literally your employer, paying the auditor's salary and exorbitant fees. From my personal experience, auditors will permit financial information that is deceitful as long as it's not illegal. The audit team will go through great lengths to cover themselves. Half of the audit work is usually focused on legal verbiage and documentation to ensure they aren't liable if the institution fails. I have so many examples, especially with a lot of firms that went under in 2009. For instance, one of my personal engagements was for a hedge fund that stated management fees were 5%. Then we added an asterisk noting that management had the ability to assess different fees. Not one of the investors was actually paying 5%. When I raised it as a concern, we were instructed that it was legally accurate. In essence, I think auditors feel a stronger sense of duty to the client than the investors who they've never met and don't pay their salaries. The reason the auditor is so important is because when you are a company that wants to be public and wants to continue to do business with the public, the public needs a way to trust that what you're selling and what you're saying that you've sold or produced or created is actually real. And that's what auditors are so important. They're the ones who say, hey, everyone in America and the world you can trust the financials of this company because us nerdy guys over here have been looking at the books and you can trust it. Go ahead and invest. Ernst and Winnie liked the money they were getting. They liked being the auditors for a big, fancy, popular company where the CEO was on fucking Oprah and getting in the Washington Post and all over the news. But they kind of looked the other way on some things. Now, they didn't think what they were doing was illegal, but they definitely didn't try hard enough to vet someone that they had already assumed was vetted by the media and society at that time. So my hope is that you guys all understand how big of a fucking deal this is. That this auditor did not actually disclose all of these things immediately. Now, why didn't they do that? Well... You could blame lawyers. I always say, lawyers built this country, and they also built it so complicated that only lawyers understand it. And so, that's where we're at now. On June 2nd, when Ernst & Winnie finally pulls out as their auditor, there is a responsibility now, not on the auditor, 
but on the publicly traded company to actually go and say to the Securities and Exchange Commission, aka the public, right, that, hey, everybody, our auditor left. We need to tell you. And that's a form called the 8K. That doesn't matter, right? What's important here is that there's a reporting requirement. If there's a big change in your publicly traded business, you've got to tell your shareholders. Because, again, the auditor is the one <laughs> that you trust to tell you that everything's okay. But do you have to tell them the next day? No. Do you have to tell them, like, an hour later? No. Maybe two days? Three days? No. ZBest had 15 days from June 2nd, 1987 to report to their shareholders that their auditor had said, fuck you, we're out of here. Now, just to be clear, the wheels of Congress move so swiftly that reporting requirement now has been dwindled from 15 days to five days. <laughs> but this time period, this 15 days, is actually super important because money was still fucking pouring into ZBest. The auditors were like, this is all a fraud. We're out of here. <laughs> run away, run away, run away. <laughs> <laughs> they all had to go. So this time, money was still pouring into ZBest, but this time, money was also pouring in betting against ZBest. Call those short sellers. I think we've talked about them on the show before. It's basically people betting that the stock would go down and just throwing it on top between June 4th and June 10th, there were four different class action lawsuits that had come in for people that were pissed about the credit card fraud. Remember, ZBest never disclosed to anyone that they had credit card fraud that happened years earlier. So the shareholders were like, well, I would have never given my fucking money to a child who had committed credit card fraud. Again, remember, 15 days before ZBest has to report. Here's the day. June 17th comes around. ZBest has to tell the SEC, a.k.a. the world and the market, that they lost their auditor. So June 17th, ZBest goes and writes a letter, sends it to the SEC, which goes to all the shareholders, but it's their side of the story. Uh, Ernst and Winnie, they, we parted ways. Uh, the, God bless them. You know, we'll be finding someone new to take over. Well, what Congress says is, listen, we're not going to always believe what the company says. The auditors are required to also file a response. Remember, the company says it first. That's after 15 days from the event. Then the auditors have to respond to what the company says. <laughs> not the next day. Not two days later. The auditors have 30 fucking days to respond and give their version of the events on why they left. It either allows a space for collusion or if you have a bad breakup, right? I would just make a bunch of outrageous charges about the auditor. And so they spend a bunch of their time like uh, responding to those things. I'd be like, listen, we were very sad uh, to lose our auditing firm. But the fact is, is that we don't allow you to do that with animals at the office. Listen, I'm just saying you can't bring animals <laughs> and do those things in there, especially with the children watching. So, you know. Should we ask the question if Ernst and Winnie believes in the Holocaust? I don't say, I'm not saying they do or do not, but we should merely ask the question of this firm. They are, uh, their responsibility is to the public, of course. We're just asking the question. That's, is it illegal to ask a question? Listen, I'm just throwing it out there. 
that uh, the professor that gave me a C uh, in college, it hasn't been proven that they aren't racist against Asians. <laughs> so I'm just throwing that out there that that is true, that it has not been proven that they are not <laughs> racist against Asian Americans. So another bit from the congressional hearing here, a man named Michael Malamut <laughs> invested a million dollars in late June. Another person named Kenneth Pavey invested $400,000 and Richard Charbit gave $600,000 in June. So this is what? This is almost $2 million more dollars it went into Z-Best in the month that Ernst & Winnie sat and didn't report anything to the public. It's really a shame to defraud Richard Charbit, one of the great barbecue <laughs> names in investing. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. So I don't know why. I should probably not even mention their names. I hope I didn't confuse anybody. Those I'll never repeat those names again for the rest of my life. So I will say Richard it, Charbit all the time when I order barbecue. And what name can we leave these burnt-ins at the counter for? For Dick Charbit. <laughs> <laughs> Also, I was thinking Michael Malamut. I kept thinking of thinking of Marmaduke. That's all I just yeah. kept thinking. I just kept I'm happy I didn't say Marmaduke. We'll just call him Michael Marmaduke. Anyways. I like how like America has enough rich people to where we don't know these people. Like you know what I mean? Like in Nigeria, if you defrauded this many people, like eventually you just be like, oh, the guy from the construction company, you know. Here it's just like Dick Charbit, whoever the fuck that is, <laughs> has 600000 extra dollars. <laughs> to just drop in to a carpet. You know, the, you know what's a great investment I'm going to make here, honey, is um, carpet cleaning. Uh, it's, it's a growing business. You know, everyone's got a carpet. You know, it needs to be clean. I think it's going to be good. Yeah, like, it's, it's, we'll probably triple our money. Yeah, Kenneth Pavey. He had 400 k back yeah. then. <laughs> These are, these guys are all guys that benefited from like th that other economy that we never got to experience. They probably these are all GI Bill guys, <laughs> guys that probably went to Harvard on the GI Bill. They got like low subsidized loans to move to the suburbs. Oh God, yeah. So in late June, the LA Times now runs another story. This time it's about the unwinding of all of the different frauds. The be cautious. Uh, the the Rothberg, uh, everything is now coming to a head. The class action lawsuits. And a few days later, July 2nd, 1987, Barry realizes shit is a wrap. The boy that was on Oprah, lauded by the LA mayor, national celebrity, written up in every single newspaper you could imagine, a hero where children from his neighborhood would go to the garage where he started Z-Best to get inspired, resigned from the company that he founded. It was a great speech. He said, everyone, please gather around. I uh, have to announce that I'm stepping down as CEO of the carpet company. This will not mean so much for your day-to-day -day activities, <laughs> considering none of you do anything. None of this exists. Most of you have sat at your desk loyally for several months with cups of coffee. You've answered phone calls, but you've had no real idea of what you're doing and you got a check. I'm sorry to disappoint you that now you won't get a check, but you still won't know what you're doing. So, uh, you got less. <laughs> <laughs> 
I see him driving away in his Ferrari. Once the board and some other accounts and investigators actually started looking at the company, they saw it was all fake. The only earnings from the carpet cleaning business they had were $68,000 in the bank. <laughs> and on July 4th weekend, America's Independence Day, <laughs> Barry's house gets raided and Z-Best files for bankruptcy. America's little entrepreneur got fucked. So <laughs> Uncle Sam was asleep at the wheel for a little bit, but you better believe on his birthday, he's coming for you, Barry. Yeah, you don't fuck with Uncle Sam's money. He's going to get it. <laughs> he's going to do it on his holiday. He's doing it for Dick Charbit and all the <laughs> other people that you... And Marmaduke. <laughs> so it would take like six months to put the case together, which by the way, it probably took six months for me to even understand this whole fucking story. In January of 88, Barry turns himself in and he tried initially at his trial to pull the victim card that the mafia was influencing him and everything like that, which didn't work because frankly, half the mafia guys were ripped off. The mafia, half the mafia were victims here. Because yeah, in the courtroom, there were a bunch of crying wise guys going, do you know how many restaurants I had to shake down to get that money that he lost? <laughs> you know how many, you, you think cement shoes are cheap? Oh, this you beat me up. to it. <laughs> yeah. Nazi Tom, everyone's favorite Nazi Tom. I hope he becomes a crowd favorite, frankly. Nazi Tom would receive eight years in federal prison. Minko would be guilty on all 57 counts, sentenced to 25 years. We all know he ended up serving only uh, seven and some change. And at sentencing, the judge told Minko, you're dangerous because you have this charisma, this gift of gab, this ability to communicate, but you have no conscience. And off to prison he went. That's actually the headline of my old Tinder profile. I'm dangerous because I have this charisma, this <laughs> gift of gab, this ability to communicate. Hey, what do you, hey, Nazi Tom definitely just joined the Nazis when he went to jail, right? Oh, shooing. He probably came in as like Caesar coming back from Egypt. They're like, this guy, <laughs> fucking hero. Nazi Tom uh, went to prison where he surprisingly joined the Nation of Islam. <laughs> I can't believe the, this. The entire country was fooled by this guy. And, you know, we're going to move on now because what does America love more than a young rags to riches success story? A redemption story. And oh. that's that's what he so gross <laughs> and as we said at the beginning of this whole fucking thing prison was just the beginning when Barry was in prison he actually made the classic religious pivot and earned a bachelor's and master's degree in divinity and religion from Liberty University <laughs> Big shout out to Jerry Falwell Jr. You got fired. You managed to get fired from your daddy's job. You know how bad you have to suck to get fired at the university your <laughs> dad started? <laughs> Jerry Falwell Jr. Pull your pants up. Everyone give a dab for Jerry Falwell. Boom. We dabbed him. Okay. <laughs> Can't wait to get to him. Probably season two or uh, something like that. So 
while in prison, he wasn't just this religious guy, and he was starting to be a, a, like train as a pastor. He was helping accountants uh, spot frauds. He was working with the government. He helped so much that he was actually let out of prison, having only served those seven years for, of course, good behavior. So now it's December of 1994, and here's the judge in the case, the one that said he had no conscience. Here's him reacting to the redemption of Barry Minko. He has done uh, some good things. He's un uncovered several hundreds of million dollars worth of frauds, and uh, I give him credit for that. So you, I mean, this is real. You've heard from federal authorities, federal agencies, that he has helped them in various investigations. Not only the federal agencies, local agencies, but the insurance industry in un uncovering lots of uh, uh, frauds that have been committed. It's good to hear from Judge Ito from the just just before the OJ trial. It's very good. <laughs> Yo, that was from 60 Minutes. Big ups to 60 Minutes. I feel bad. They were just like, uh, so this is real. This is real? And they're like, yeah, yeah, guys, come on. <laughs> Fool me once, right? <laughs> they have a saying down in Tennessee, or maybe it was in Texas, that you'll fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame, I won't be fooled again. Remember that George <laughs> W. Bush quote? Yeah, yeah, from Bob O'Reilly. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> so Barry's reformed, man. And if there's one thing America's not going to get enough of, it's him redeeming himself. And in 1995, he starts working at the church at Rocky Peak in Chatsworth, California. And in speaking with the Washington Post, Minko said he turned his life around. He said, quote, if you don't have a change of heart, you're always going to go right back to what you did before. In my case, that was fraud. Foreshadowing. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. After his stint working at the church, he moved to San Diego and became the lead pastor there. Let's be clear. A church in San Diego knew this man's history, saw what he had done, and said, yes, lead our flock. <laughs> this is the worst thing to happen to San Diego since the dinosaurs got loose in Jurassic Park 2. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I hope the atheists that listen to the show are just doing, just dabbing themselves, just having a great old time, because big win for them from this whole series. So, wow, here he is again. Just like he was a gym instructor during the week and carpet cleaning on the weekends, he was a pastor, and now he had made this institute, the Fraud Discovery Institute, to combat fraud from happening. You can't beat how hard this guy was working. You really can't. And the Fraud Discovery Institute was, quote, a for-profit entity that allegedly was aimed at the detection and prevention of fraudulent business practices. And he did this. He actually helped the FBI. He taught classes to FBI agents. This was a real thing. He did help the FBI with fraud cases. But <laughs> he also used it in some other ways. But, but first here, take a listen to this 2006 clip from 60 Minutes where they talked to some of the FBI guys that he was working with at that time. He is a bull in a china shop. Um, he expects us federal uh, investigators to immediately jump on it and have this thing shut down within a couple weeks. You just can't do that. First of all, the information that I'm getting is from Barry Minko. 
Uh, so I, I have to re-verify everything he has done already. You trust him? Trust but verify. Yo, I love every question in 60, the 60 Minutes thing. It was just like, yo, for real? For real? For, I, oh, for real? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no, no. He's totally, totally right. Everything's totally fine. I love another red flag of the protesting too much is cover. It's like, Barry is so anti-fraud. He wants to shut down everything immediately. He's more <laughs> anti-fraud than even the FBI. It's like, dude, exactly. all right. <laughs> We're just so surprised how eager he is. So in January 2009, I mean, things are going well. He's he's done it. He's turned the corner. He's helped the FBI capturing millions of dollars, and he's doing the Fraud Discovery Institute. He did, though, find one company, Lennar Corporation, a home-building company, and this is where his old ways got cooking again. He made a report that they had irregularities and accounting fraud. And on January 9th, 2009, as a result of the report that Barry had made, their stock fell 20%. They filed suit in Florida, and their stock price continued to drop to nearly 50% of its value. So, yes, Barry was fighting fraud. He was doing a good job. But it turns out one of his buddies, Nicholas Marsh III, a San Diego developer, apparently hired Barry to make a fake report and paid him for it, and then they all shorted the stock. They knowingly made false accusations. Barry even put videos up on his website, which, by the way, I could not find anywhere, which is very upsetting, that Lennar Corp was filled with fraud. So now the redeemed pastor, fraud, anti-fraud expert comes out and says a company's fraudulent, of course, the stock's going to plummet. And this is like a real company. It's like the big short, except with the cast of Super Troopers. <laughs> so in March of 2011, Minko pleads guilty to insider trading in a civil lawsuit and pleads guilty to securities fraud and conspiring to manipulate a stock. By now, I think you guys all should be experts into exactly what all of this means. He made false statements. The stock plummeted. He profited off that stock plummeting, and he didn't give a shit about anybody else. And guess what, guys? He's still a pastor. But at this point, the nice San Diego community church is like, um, I don't think you should be our pastor anymore. He goes to prison for five years, and he's ordered to pay $583 million back to Lennar Corporation. Because that's how much they ended up losing in that. As he went to prison, he said that he was driven by his abuse of steroids in his teenage years, which led him to become addicted to painkillers in his 40s. So he took so many steroids that he actually went sterile and needs constant treatment to limit his body's production of estrogen. <laughs> Oh, no joke there, Justin? No joke to the sterile <laughs> sterile fraudster that we have here? <laughs> How much does that suck? You defrauded people for decades, and what happens? You're, you're fucking shooting blanks now. You're toast. You're done. This is so sad. I like how we went from uh, Wolf of Wall Street to The Wrestler starring Mickey Rourke. Like, oh, <laughs> exactly. So 
that should be it, right? There should be no more to talk about. The man is in jail for five years. He's getting cleaned up. But only a few years later, there was more meat left on that fraud bone. U.S. Attorney Laura Duffy announced that Minko admitted to embezzling and defrauding, that's right, the San Diego Community Bible Church out of more than $3 million. But, Justin, I thought he didn't touch the collection plate. Master's degrees in religion and divinity and now preaches to 1,400 parishioners at his Community Bible Church in San Diego. But he doesn't go near the collection box. The better part of wisdom says alcoholics shouldn't be bartenders. I mean, you know, I just don't want any part of it. Do you talk about your sins? All the time. Evangelism has been known to be a refuge for conmen. Yeah. Archer, we're, we're not like that. We tell people who are visiting not to give. We're not a TV ministry. We don't say, if you don't send me money, I'm going to die. It's not that kind of ministry at all. Okay, so let me break down what he did. God, it's exasperating how much this man did. <laughs> He would do it a very cleanly, transactionally fraudulent way. He tricked a widower into making a $75,000 donation for a hospital in Sudan to honor his late wife. In reality, the hospital never existed. Minko just pocketed the money. He even wrote a letter to the guy's daughter. And I, I think I mentioned it in the last episode, but here it is again because it's so insidious. I believe we are honoring your mom's heart directly by helping the, the kids and needy in Darfur with this hospital construction. He straight stole $300,000 from a widowed grandmother who was trying to raise her teenage daughter. This, oh my God. He forged signatures on the church's checks. He used funds from the church account for his personal use. He started authorizing personal expenses on church credit cards, and he even diverted member donations to his own benefit and just all around embezzled money meant for the church for himself all over the place. Oh, Jesus. It's too much, Justin, so much. In May of 2014, Minko gets an additional five years on his sentence, and he's ordered to pay $3.4 million in restitution. Oh, my God. The judge in that case, Judge Michael Anello, said it doesn't get much worse than this in the world of nonviolent crime. U.S. Attorney Laura Duffy added, Barry Minko is among the worst kind of predators. He gained the affection and trust of his victims from the pulpit and then stole not only their money, but their faith in humanity, the clergy, the church, and themselves. This sentence will keep him from exploiting another victim for a while. And keep this in mind, everybody. We're going to do a series next on affinity frauds. And when people use your heart and your identity to gain your trust and take advantage of you, that's an affinity fraud. And he, he did this with these people. Uh, you know, you got to feel bad for folks that just want to go and, you know, ignore reality and believe in the magical life of Christianity. And that's a beautiful thing. That brings you peace. That brings you happiness. And this man took advantage of that. And that shit is wrong. But we all should know, Barry Minko, as of June 6, 2019, is out of prison. Oh, no. Hide your kids. <laughs> hide your wife. Hide your pocketbooks. <laughs> hide your stocks. Of the $3.4 that he owes, 250 k will go to the IRS because they got to get their money. 
65k will go to the San Diego Foundation for the Church and Fraud, and the rest will go to the individual victims to make them whole. But Justin, I feel like we missed something. Yeah, what did he do with all the money he was getting through the fraud? Uh it wasn't a Ponzi scheme. That's right. It was not a Ponzi scheme. This was real money that he was taking from people. And he actually went into the only business more terrifyingly fraudulent than Wall Street. Show business. There's no business like show business at all. Here's a trailer of the movie Con Man that Barry Minko <laughs> was producing while he was a pastor and running the Fraud Discovery Institute. I'm telling you, man, I'm making things change. I'm gonna make a ton of money, and I'm gonna have everything that I want. How many things cost? Oh, like a thousand bucks. Now you're in business, kid. What, are you some kind of loan shark? I'm a businessman. You want in? Yeah, I want it. If I had the money, there's no limit to what I can do. You see what I'm talking about? I mean, he's brilliant. <laughs> The checks from the Northridge account haven't cleared yet. If I write a check from that account into the second account, I can cover my shortage. It's called check kiting. It's illegal. It doesn't matter. Look, everybody thinks I'm some kind of hotshot now. I gotta keep that going. This is called restoration work. The insurance companies contract it out to restore it, and you make millions. We need to find a way to fake some non-existent restoration jobs. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in jobs that don't exist. We split profit 50-50. Can I trust him? Absolutely. Your stock is worth $100 million. <laughs> I had everything I ever wanted until it all came crashing down. No, 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 no. Did it come see you? Who? The FBI. Special Agent Gamble, FBI. You can't climb out of this one, man. You have no idea what it takes to build something. You don't have anything because you don't have God. I'll buy God. You are hereby ordered to serve a term of 25 years in jail. The church has $5 million parked in a money market. The perfect ingredient for the successful Ponzi scheme. For once in your life, don't take a shortcut. You're running the scam. You really trying to change your life? Or is it just another Barry Minko cop? Justin Jason, get on the floor! You're asking me to give the carpet guy this bank statement for $5 million. What am I, crazy? All right, all right. That, 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 that's, that's crazy. Justin Baldini, James Kahn, Ving Rames, Elizabeth Rom, Talia Shire, Mark Hamill, and Armand Asante all starred in Con Man, the redemption story of Barry Minko. Next week, we have the screenwriter, the motherfucking screenwriter of the original version of that movie, because I assure you, you will know that his script was not actually what ended up on screen. And he's going to talk about his experience. He's got tons of great stories. He had such an insight into what that experience was like. And he was making this movie while he was stealing money from the church and shorting those stocks. Wow. And guess what? 
Barry insisted on playing himself in the movie. So, man, just when you thought we were done with this guy, Justin. Uh, I encourage you to watch this movie in preparation for the interview because... No, you don't encourage. You do not encourage. No, I encourage you to watch it because this is... It's amazing what you can get names to appear in. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, Again... Thank you, Emily Fusco, for the research. Hazel Bryan uh, for producing. Marie Anderson on the edit. Oh, what an amazing couple episodes this has been. And we're not even finished yet. Uh, This has been a production of Zero Cool Media and Last Podcast Network. We'll see you next time.